Good morning, everyone. Oh, that's loud. Good now? All right. Um, I'm really glad to be with you today. Uh, it's been um, a while since I've been in the pulpit, and I am thrilled, really, to be able to be here with you guys today. Um, Jamin talked earlier about testimony and how it might be better in biography, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of biography right now. Um, you might not know, but I'll tell you, my name is Cole Small. Uh, my wife, Ashley, is over there, and my three kids, Landry is on the floor. He's already bored of the preacher today. Uh, Shay and Evangeline. Um, we are fairly new to Laramie. We just started our third year here. Um, we were in Lincoln, Nebraska before that. We did campus ministry there at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and we did youth ministry in Florida before that at a church down there. Um, we've been all over, my wife and I have been. We lived in Missouri together. That's where we met. We lived in Colorado. That's where she's from. Like I said, Florida, Nebraska. But Wyoming is the first place we've lived where we said, you know what? Like, we really want to be here. And we like Florida. We like Nebraska and all those different places. But Wyoming, we, we're, we're setting down roots here. Um, and so, like, the idea, when Mike, was, Mike approached us about the idea of coming on staff, we've been here about a year as members. Um, said, we said, man, like, being in a place that we love, Wyoming, being in a church that is really incredible, a church with really good people, and being able to have the opportunity to be with those people on a daily basis and also be able to do this um, on a semi-something basis. Um, it is something that really was an incredible act of God that we're really, really thrilled about. And so I'm grateful, I'm very grateful to be up here with you guys today and just be able to share God's word with you. Um, when I asked Mike, and I'm going to make sure this works, Mike, I'm not sure. I just got you started. Just push play. Just press play? Okay. When I asked Mike if I could have one of the Churches of Revelation, he picked his least favorite one. And he said, yeah, you can, you can have this. And so we ended up as Sardis. So let me pray, and then we will get into Sardis. God, it is so good. It is so good to be with your people. Um, God, it is not just a sunny morning thing for most of us here. Um, we are able to be blessed by other believers in Christ in small groups and in Bible studies and in book studies and at, at work and, and school and wherever we are, God, we're it's just such a blessing. But to be able to be here and be able to read your word and, and worship through song and worship through preaching and worship through fellowship and communion and offering, God, it's just, man, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It gets me excited. God, as we look at Sardis today, Sardis is not an easy church. Sardis has some real, real issues. But there are things that we can take from it that are good. God, I also pray that as we look at some of the hard things of Sardis, that we reflect on our own hearts, reflect on our own minds and say, do I, and, and ask ourselves, are we, is there some small reflection of those bad things that Sardis is doing? But know there's hope on the other side of it. Know that Christ offers us repentance. He offers us community. He offers us love and grace. And God, so let us just come to Sardis in Revelation 3 with an open heart. Uh, let us come with minds and souls exposed to what you will have us learn. And let us leave here even closer to you than we came in. And so we're just so, so grateful for your son and for what he does for us and for your Holy Spirit as he speaks to us and in our minds and in our hearts and through the conversations that we have with others. And we're just grateful to pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Sardis, in your bulletin, uh, Marilyn put, 
It is, a, it is the autopsy of a dead church, but it's kind of a title subtitle. It is a, de- it is a dead church. That Revelation 3 says that. Jesus calls them a dead church, but it's also a church complacency. You don't just wake up one day and be dead. You have to, you have to over time, over the course of time, just in your life and in your soul and in your activities, you have to continue to be complacent and complacent and complacent until you get to a point where, again, like the bulletin says, you're a dead church. So Sardis is a church complacency and a complacency led to being dead. Now, this is important, I think, and Mike shows us every week. Sardis is here. It's not on the coast, and you can see there's a mountain range there which plays into it, and Ephesus kind of plays into a little bit today, too, because we, while Sardis, we don't know where it was planted, a lot of people think that when Paul came and planted the church in Ephesus, he somehow migrated up to the northeast through the King's Highways, which is what that road is called from Thyatira to Sardis and down to Philadelphia. But they think that Paul somehow migrated up there and planted the church. Now, we don't have a letter to Sardis. We just have these couple verses from Jesus to Sardis. We're not entirely sure who started it, but we do think it was Paul on that missionary journey. So to zoom in a little bit, that's Sardis. Again, King's Highway. That mountain range there is extremely important. There's two things to know about Sardis. Uh, Well, there's two and a half things, and we'll get to that half thing too. There's an Acropolis, and I'll show you a picture of it just here in a second. The Acropolis sits 1,500 feet above the valley below. And so it's, and I'll just get to the pictures. That's the Acropolis on the back. You can see how it's, it looks steep, it's steep. It's 1,500 feet above this valley below, and it's in pretty much impenetrable on three sides. It's, it's straight up on three sides. And so when Sardis had this, had this uh, when it was a city, and as the church is part of Sardis, they thought they were, they thought they had peace, they thought they had security, they thought they were good to go, they thought that because they, because they were on the end of a trade highway, the King's Highway, there were a lot of people that came through, a lot of people that wanted that area, but they, were, they thought they were safe. They thought because their Acropolis was so impenetrable, was so high up, was so unreachable by enemies and by enemy troops that they were good to go. However, they weren't. Um, here's another picture of it. You can see, how, again, how, how steep those walls are. They were overtaken twice, once in the 6th century B.C., by Cyrus of Persia. He's kind of well-known. You might know him. Cyrus of Persia, there was a soldier named Hieroedas, and he was a Persian soldier. They were looking up at the Acropolis, said, we'd like to take that. And Hieroedas was a Persian, Persian soldier, and he saw a Sardinian, or Mike says I should say sardine soldier. <laughs> There's a sardine soldier that dropped his helmet down a hill, and it rolled down the hill, rolled down the hill, and he went to get it, and this Hieratus, the Persian soldier, saw that and said, you know what, I bet we, can, we might be able to take that by that route. And so one by one, the Persian people went up that route. Cyrus, or I'm sorry, Croesus, who was the king of Sardis at that time, he uh, went to sleep thinking they were peace, thinking they were peaceful, thinking they were secure, and in the morning they woke up. He woke up, and the city was invaded because people went up that route that Hieratus saw the Sardine soldier drop his helmet down. So they were invaded once, in the 6th century B.C. and another time, in about 195 B.C., by a guy named Antiochus, who was a Seleucid king of Hellenistic Syrian kingdom. There was also an earthquake in 17 A.D. And so this idea the Sardis had of being on top of the world, this idea the Sardis had of being an, in, an impregnable fortress, of having peace and security, at diff, three, different, three different times in their period, in their history, it proved them wrong. But somehow in the back of their minds, they still thought, we're good to go. 
No one's going to take, no one's going to, no one's going to attack us. No one's going to take us over. We're good to go. We're safe. And that safety and that peacefulness they thought they had trickled down to the church. A lot of times, not a lot of times, but Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, says that the church should be a city on a hill, right? And literally, like, they had a chance to be a city on a hill in Sardis. A city on a hill that stands out to the world, so the church, so the world sees him. And the church says, we're different than the world is. We're, we're better, not better than the world is, but Christ gives us something better than the world does. And they're supposed to stand out. But in Sardis, the church became so complacent, so much like the city, so peaceful and secure in their own minds, that again, like we've already seen, the church becomes dead. Now, I said it was known for two things, the Acropolis, and it's also known for the Necropolis. There's, it's called, I'm going to go back a slide. Um, it's not quite in this picture. That's, that's the half thing. I'll get to that too. The, the Necropolis was a... a um, a thousand different tombs, and it was said to be. It was said that you could see it from seven miles away. So there are a thousand tombs on a thousand hills. That I don't know why you'd want to be known for your cemetery, but they were known for their cemetery. They were known for being really high, and they were known for being really low. This, that half thing is the Temple of Artemis. It rivals the Temple of, Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, which is where, in Acts, they say, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians." Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and it becomes kind of ugly for Paul and Barnabas. They also worshipped, as you can see there, Artemis. Um, so those are the things. Another, another, another view. Again, the people thought they had peace and security. The church, you would hope it'd be different, but they didn't. Jesus looked, or I'm sorry, the church looked at themselves as the city did. They thought they were the city on a hill. They thought they were peaceful. They thought they were secure. That's how they looked at themselves. But instead, Jesus looked at them as the necropolis. They're just a city of dead people, a thousand tombs that could, that could be seen from seven miles away. Now, there's two things to know about Sardis compared to the rest of the churches in Revelation. There's no outside strife in Sardis. As we read through, and as, and as Micah said of these first four churches, there's outside strife. There's the Nicolaitans in Ephesus. There's the imprisoned believers in Smyrna. There's Antipas killed and others threatened in Pergamon. There's Jezebel in Thyatira. Next week, there's a synagogue of Satan, and, and Michael do whatever he does on that. But in Sardis, there's nothing. That's an emoji. It's, it's a... I don't know, Moji. There's nothing happening in Sardis. There's no outside strife at all. In all these different areas, Satan is coming against them with all these different types of things. And in Sardis, there's no mention of Satan coming against the church at all. Now, there's a problem there, right? I mean, if you've been to the church a while and you've, even, even a little bit you've been to the church, you've known that the enemy comes against the church. You've seen the enemy come against people in the church and want to wipe out and kill and destroy the church. In all those different places, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Satan is actively coming against the church. And those are the, that's, the, that's the effect of what, of what Satan is doing. But in Sardis, there's such a complacent church. There's such a dead church that Satan's like, I don't even need to do anything. You guys have been left to your own devices. You guys have brought this upon yourselves. Satan just lets them go. Let's them run rampant. He doesn't have to pressure Sardis because their church is already dead. So we'll start. Revelation 3.1. And to the angel in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I said there were two primary ways that Sardis is different. One is that there's no outside uh, influence from Satan. Two is that there's no opening commendation. And Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and smear, and I know your tribulation, your poverty, 
Pergamum, I know that you hold fast my name, Thyatira, your love, your faith, your service, Philadelphia next week. I know you've kept my word and not denied my name, but Sardis, there's nothing. There's no opening commendation. Instead, like we saw in verse 1 there, uh, he knows your works. You have the reputation of being alive, and you, kind of, you can kind of imagine, at least I can in my mind, you can kind of imagine the guy who's reading this to the church in Sardis saying, you have the reputation of being alive, and people are like, yeah, of course we do. Yeah, we're great. Like, we do these really cool things. But then the kicker is, but you're dead. People think of you as alive. You think of yourselves as alive. But Christ looks at you, and you're dead. There's no opening commendation from God. There's no opening commendation saying, these are your good works, as Mike has got, got into these last four, these last four uh, churches. There's an opening commendation, but then there's the hard part. But there's not even an opening commendation. There's just skipping to the hard part. And the problem is that with, these, with this lack of opening commendation, with this truth that Jesus says of them being dead, you can kind of imagine, and I'm sure there's people in our lives that we know like this, you can kind of imagine some people hearing, yeah, you're dead, like there's no good work in you, you are spiritually dead, you are far from God, and some people just going, eh, I, I mean, okay, like that's fine. I have a friend named Dustin, and uh, I, went to, I went to Bible college with Dustin, actually. We, we were best friends. Um, we played on the same basketball team together. Uh, I broke his car window once, um, and it's just like we... We were, we, he was a good friend. He's still a good friend. We've been to WrestleMania six times, actually, so it's a little nerdy thing about me. Um, so, but Dustin was a good friend of mine, loved Jesus, um, studied about Jesus, studied about youth ministry. He didn't, gra- he didn't graduate from Ozark Christian College where we went in Missouri and I, where I met my wife. But after he left Ozark, he went back to Iowa where he's from, helped out in the youth group, was really active in the youth group, told people about Jesus, incredibly active in his faith. He was one of those guys that thought, hey, I'm alive. Like, I'm alive in Christ. And you could actually look at him and say, yeah, I, he's alive. Christ is alive in him. Long story short, he was in a horrific car accident. And I don't, I, I, there's no way I can downplay it. He was in a horrific car accident. He ended up in a wheelchair. One of, the, one of the kids he was driving lost his life. One of the youth group kids he was driving lost his life. And I can't imagine the pain and the strife that Dustin went through. I, I, I hope that very few, I hope that no one has to, Imagine that pain and strife that Dustin went through. But over the course of time, this is about 15 years ago, Dustin had the accident. Over the course of time, I watched a friend of mine who loved Jesus, who loved the church, who loved telling about people about Jesus, who was active in his community, active in his faith, active with Christ. This horrific accident hit, and he hasn't lost, he, he still believes the Bible is true. He still believes Christ is real. He still believes God is who he says he is. But through circumstances in his life and through him being complacent towards God, Dustin has become someone that has gone farther and farther away. And I've had conversation with him and I said, Dustin, there's no growth in you, man. There's, there's, no, there's clearly no faith in Christ from you. And he says, yeah, like I get all this stuff. I believe all the stuff you believe, but I don't care. I just don't care. This is what's happening in Sardis. There was a faith, and we don't know how good the faith was. We know, we think that Paul planted it, so obviously it, it came with a pretty big name and a big faith bringing from Paul. But over the course of time, through circumstances that happen, through the complacency of thinking that you're peaceful and secure, they become dead, 
And I believe that some are okay with their deadness. God knows the truth about them, but they're okay with it. Revelation 3, 2 through 3. Wake up, Christ says. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. The church is dead, but there are a few, and we'll see here in a second. There are a few that God has not fully withdrawn his blessings from Sardis. You know, I was thinking a lot about the church this week, and obviously we're preaching on Sardis, and we're going through the seven churches of Revelation. But I, I was thinking a lot about, like, what comprises a church? Right? It's not just, I mean, and this is not some, like, silly Sunday school answer, and yeah, I teach the youth and all that, but this is not some silly Sunday school question of, like, oh, what makes a church? But Paul planted this, likely. God called Paul, or whoever the church planter was, to Sardis to plant this church, to tell people about Jesus. Jesus, it, they were preaching the power and the gospel and the majesty of who Jesus was, and the Holy Spirit comes in on the church and works with people. It works with the church planter, works with the people who are there to become this tremendous group of people who worship God and who are led by the Holy Spirit. The church, and you guys all know this, this is not new to you guys, the church is not just these people, but like God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are active in that. Like it's not just a few people, that a, few, a few people say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, I don't like this anymore, they leave and the church dies. Like what are we going to do? No, the Holy Spirit is still with the church. So how far down does a church have to go? How far down does a group of people have to go who are who are planted by God, who, are, who preach about Jesus, who are led by the Holy Spirit, how far down does this church have to go where Jesus just says, I'm done with you. I, I can't be around you anymore. You guys are not a church anymore. They've gone against God. They stopped preaching the gospel of Jesus. They stopped listening to the Holy Spirit. How far down? And I don't know how much it applies, and, and maybe Mike can come up here next week and say, well, actually, Cole should have said this. But like, I think back to the verse that says, how many times should you forgive your brother? 70 times 7. And like, I don't know how many times Jesus forgave this church and how much grace and mercy Jesus showed this church. We can assume it's a lot because Jesus is graceful and merciful. But how many times did Jesus have to look at this church and, and, and listen to this church's repentance and give grace and mercy to this church and how many times did that happen until Jesus finally said, these, they're not listening to him anymore? They've grown so complacent in who they are that their works are not complete in the sight of my God. And it's, it's, it's scary to me. Not scary in my own faith, not scary for a church or any church I've ever been in, but it's scary for me and it hurts my heart for Sardis to say how far down how many hundreds and even thousands of times did this church have to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ for Jesus to say, we have no relationship anymore. And he says, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I'll come against you. So they've heard the gospel. Remember then you received and heard. He said, repent, turn back from the worldly ways you have. And come back to Jesus. But the scariest part about this verse is that he will come like a thief. And I think there's echoes of 1 Thessalonians in there. But then he says, you will not know what hour I, Jesus, will come against you. They're not just going to die and be on the side of the road and people forgot about him. 
Jesus himself promises that he will come against this church. Jesus, the God of the universe, who has not just created space and time, but he is outside of space and time. Jesus, who created every seven or 20, seven billion people in the world now and 20 billion or whatever people say has lived in the, since the beginning of time. Jesus, who created everything you see around you, he himself will come against this church. The hopelessness of this church and the hopelessness of that idea that Jesus will come against this church. I mean, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Sardis, again, they believed in their peace and security, and I think that, I think that reflects in 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. That's the other famous verse about Jesus coming like a thief in the night. Thief in the night. And those people are saying there's peace and security. And there's so much connection there between what Sardis is and what Thessalonians is saying. There's peace and security. They're sitting on a hill. They're 1,500 feet above. No one can take us. We're good to go. We're just like our city. And Jesus says, nope. I will come against you. Jesus can bring judgment upon them at any hour. So wake up and strengthen what, is, what remains. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. Verse 4. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The language here for the, for the few that remain. The beauty of this church in Sardis, if there is a beauty, there's a small beauty. The beauty is that despite this church being completely dead, despite this church being complacent for days and weeks and months and years and who knows, even decades, there are still a few people that remain that say, that look around them, see the travesty of other people's lives, see the deadness in their eyes that used to be life in Jesus, they still look around to them and say, man, but I can't give up on this. Like, Jesus is so real to me. Jesus is so, is so true to me. He's so good to me. Everything about him that I've read and seen is that he is, that he is real and he is alive and he is for us and he fights for us. There are few, still a few names in Sardis who see the dead around them and they have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with Christ in white, for they are worthy. They'll walk with Christ in white. That the one who conquers, uh, the first time, a couple times I read that, I thought, oh, Jesus is the conqueror. Like, that's what Revelation is about, isn't it? Jesus conquers, he comes down on his white horse, death two on his thigh, etc., etc. But it's not about Jesus. It's saying the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I, Jesus, will never blot his name out of the book of life. Jesus is... Jesus doesn't need to put his name in the book of life. He, he, he wrote the book of life. He's the one who will not blot his name out. So the one who conquers is us. The one who conquers are the people in Sardis who have not yet soiled their garments. It reminds me of Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Even though Satan is the one who condemns, he's so powerless next to God, next to Jesus, 
Satan condemns. The answer should be Satan. Jesus is like, no, no one condemns because I'm so much greater than Satan is. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who condemns Jesus? But God is so powerful, and at the right hand of the throne of God, he intercedes for us, and nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Not trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or dangerous sword or sword, as it's written, for your sake we face, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. The ones who walk with Jesus in white, who are clothed with Jesus in white, are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through Christ who loved us. For I, Paul continues to, to say, for I am convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These other churches that have opening commendations, these other churches in Revelation that have people coming against them, they have sheep being slaughtered, like Paul is saying here. They have outside forces coming against them, but not Sardis. But the people who remain in Sardis, the few who actually are walking with Christ still in Sardis, they're called worthy. And the promise is they'll walk in white. Those who are in Christ will walk with Jesus. Those who are in Christ are clothed in garments of perfection and glory. Those who are in Christ will never have their names blotted out of the book of life. And those who are in Christ, again, Christ will confess that last verse there. Christ will confess their names before my Father and before his angels. Christ will confess the names of those who are worthy. Christ will confess the names of those who stay with Jesus. Christ will confess for us. It's not just some random guy, like some proxy that God sends to be like, yeah, this guy, like this angel, he's like kind of in the second tier of angels, but like he's the one who's not busy right now. He'll testify for your behalf. Jesus himself will confess our names before Christ, before, Father, before the Father, and before the angels. Like that's a powerful, powerful statement. Christ will confess for us. And he ends with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. There's a lot of key verses. I think every, I think, I think every verse in Scripture is key verse. But for me, like this is, not, this is a wrap-up to say it's not just for Sardis. This is, these previous six verses are not just for Sardis. These weren't just for the city in the middle of nowhere in modern-day Turkey that had a city on a hill, and the city on the hill, it, they got ransacked, and there are a bunch of idiots there, and people are dead there because they've been complacent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I don't think it's just for those seven churches that we've been going through. I think it's for the church, the universal church. So if we have an ear, we can't just look and start us and be like, yeah, like those guys, that just happens. Like God, God's going to be with us. Like, like a church can't lose the Holy Spirit. A church, a church can't get so far away from God that, that Christ will receive his, that, that Christ will remove his blessing. But the fact of the matter is it's, I think it still happens. Churches get so far from God and people in churches get so far from God that we say, you know what? Like we're complacent. We're okay with our thing. We're like Dustin. We believe in all that stuff, but we don't want that stuff to really rule our lives. We just don't want it. We're dead. You, be, you just become a dead church. So let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. 
few takeaways. Um, you're complacent before you're dead. And I think it's important to take stock of our faith. Where are we at with Christ? Are we, and I know, like, there's many of you in this room who have known Christ longer than I've been alive, known Christ longer than Mike's been alive. And I'm so grateful for, and I'm having conversations with, with, with you, some of you and other people that I've known. I'm so grateful for the people who have known Christ for decades that still every day wake up and take stock of where they're at, that they don't allow complacency to sink in and say, they say, and they ask, like, man, God, I, I, I need to repent. I need to get rid of these things. God, am I still listening to you? God, am I still with you? Am I, are we still, am I still seeking community with you? So the idea of taking stock when we're getting complacent or taking stock even before we get complacent, it will always help us. It will always keep death from happening. You're complacent before you're dead. Number two, cultivate a healthy fear of God. And I found this quote uh, by a guy named Albert Martin. I, have a, I, I, I bought a book a while back and I never read it, but I thought this was kind of important, especially to start us. So he says, the fear of God is that regard, is that regard of God, which considering him in the majesty and glory of his person and the grace manifested in his saving work, produces in us the conviction that his smile is the greatest of life's blessings and his frown the greatest of life's curses. Christ and God smile on churches that are doing the work of God. They, they are so pleased and blessed and so, so incredibly honored to do work with us, and we are honored to do work with them. But his frown for churches like Sardis is the greatest of life's curses. Albert, the book, Forgotten Fear, is on the idea of the fear of God. And to, to receive God's frown is something that should produce a fear of God in us. So again, cultivate a healthy fear of God. And thirdly, consider the promises of Jesus for those who walk with him. There's not just, there are some serious things that are happening in Sardis. There are some seri serious things that have happened in Sardis. They are dead. They are incapable of coming back to life. But on the other side, for those who are with Jesus, those few who remain and who walk in white and who have the power and the majesty and the promises of Jesus, consider the promises of Jesus for those who walk with him. They're not works-based, but they are God's grace to those who say, Jesus, my life is yours. Jesus, whatever, whatever plans I had for my life, like if you don't want me to do those, that's fine because you are the Lord of my life. And I tell the youth group kids all the time this, is that like, there are some cool things that they could work for. There are some neat things that they, could, that they could aspire to. But the promises of Jesus, as he even says here in, these, in, this, in this terrible letter to Sardis, these promises of Jesus for those who walk with him, they take precedent and power over all of the things of this world. So consider the promises of those for those who walk with him. Let me pray. God, again, I, I, none of us would be here. Not a single one of us in this room would be here if we didn't know people in whatever church that we knew them from, even if we never attended that church, went to that church, none of us would be here if there were people in your universal church that didn't tell us about Jesus, that didn't tell us about 
the good and gracious nature that he, that he offers us, didn't tell us about the release and salvation from sin that he offers us, didn't tell us about the power over death and the enemy that he offers us. Not a single one of us would be here on a Sunday morning if we had, didn't have someone telling us about that. And God, I look at Sardis and wherever they were before this letter was written, wherever they were immediately or in the years to follow after their planting, God, they had people like that. There were people like that who were proclaiming the truth of Jesus. And we don't know, and maybe we'll, and we'll never know this side of heaven, and maybe I don't even know if it's a question we'll want to ask in heaven. And we don't know what happened, God, but there was complacency that sank in. God, there's complacency that desires to sink in in all of us. I think it's so important for us to notice the work of Satan on these other churches and in the churches to come. I think it's so important to see that it is Satan who brings these evils against these churches. And I think it's so important for us to realize that not everything is of Satan. It's not, it's not one of those things you stub your toe and, oh, that's Satan. But there are, there is absolutely... An, ir- an, an impressive and awesome attack of Satan to come and try to kill the church. Come and try to kill the power of God. Come and try to kill the work of the Spirit. And so, God, as we fight against complacency, help us realize, A, that Satan is working against the church and hates the people who love Jesus. Hates everybody, but it's even more the people who love Jesus, but B, there is a God who helps us even more than conquerors, who, who, who doesn't even let judgment by the enemy happen to us because he's so much more powerful than that. And that we as the church and that we as believers and Christians in the church can look at that and say, yeah, like we know Satan will come against us, but we serve a God who not only is more powerful now, but he, the promises he offers us then in the future to walk with him in white and it will confess our name before the Father are absolutely, absolutely powerful enough, strong enough and good enough promises that complacency should never sink in. Guys, I do. I just want to break, pray against complacency for us in this room. Sardis is a heartbreaking church and the things that happened to him to them are frightening, but they happen because of complacency. Your promise is that you are with your church. And if we are searching for you and we are trying, looking to find you and if we are spending time with you and communing with you and wanting to be with you and reading of your word, there's a step there, but then complacency can't sink in. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your church and the promises you make to it. Thank you that you allow us to be a part of it. And by being a part of it, we can one day walk with you in white, for we are worthy. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.